This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Germany is in focus in Europe and around the globe today, as its historically strong economy undergoes a transformation adapting to the digital age. To talk about that and much, much more, we're joined by Wolfgang Fink, Goldman Sachs Chief Executive Officer for Germany and Austria. Wolfgang, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Jake. Good to be here. So let's start by just talking about the state of the German economy. Where are we in the cycle and what's been driving the sort of volatility over there this year? Since we are off the crisis or the crisis is behind us, Germany's economy has been thriving and has been leading Europe in many respects. Um, and that we have seen in particular since 2014. Still very strong performance of the economy, but I'd say we are a bit towards the end of the cycle. We are more in line with European growth. We're not outperforming European growth. But we're still slightly ahead of economies like France and Italy in terms of the growth and the expected growth coming. Countries like Spain are stronger. So I think we still have a very stable picture, but clearly these very strong years of growth are somewhat behind us. And is the strength outside of German's economy, should that be helping the German economy as well? Or how does it rate relative to the rest of the Eurozone? I think in general, it helps to balance it a bit between all of Europe. But generally, I'd say that the German employment levels are at record highs. So you could see over time a shortage in the labor market, although our researchers believe that there's still a year or two that we can see increasing employment rates. Having said that, it feels like we are pretty much at capacity. And so it's actually good if we get into a more stable, more moderate level here. So Germany is obviously a famous exporter of all sorts of goods, particularly manufactured goods, world's third largest exporter. What impact is all the global trade tension having on that picture, the export picture? You're absolutely right. I think the specific trade deficit uh, or surplus, um, as it's been discussed, is particularly large vis-a-vis the U.S., over $60 billion. And so that's certainly something to look at. Where we are now in these trade discussions, we're talking about very specific sectors and very narrow segments. So tariffs there would have a limited impact on the German economy. The bigger question is obviously a full trade war. And then Germany and Europe, but Germany is a very, very strong part of Europe, would be affected the most. So there is a certain anxiety over this escalating and its impacts for the German economy. You mentioned the labor market. What should we make of the full, of near full employment that we're seeing today? Is that, uh, I mean, obviously a source of strength to the economy, but is it bringing some tensions along with it? We feel that the German economy still has pockets of supply that are not that obvious to the statistics, which are, for example, the part-time labor rates. So in the crisis, there was a huge movement to part-time work and part-time employment. And these people still could go to full-time. So there are pockets like this which would allow the economy to further grow and the labor rates still increase. But having said that, we are pretty much at full employment. We are still, as a house, as Goldman, we are not that optimistic that that will lead to increased inflation for a lot of other reasons. But the market feels that specifically for very skilled labor, specific sectors, there is shortages building. After more than 10 years in power, German Chancellor Angela Merkel seems to be having more difficulty on the political front, and that's affected her ability to win backing for her policies. Talk a little bit about the political climate today and what issues are top of mind for German people and voters. Clearly, Merkel and her government have stood for stability and reliability in Europe and in Germany. And I think that has been serving Germany very well. 
Now with Macron in power in France, the axis between Germany and France is, is a source of strength for the European Union. And you could see uh, new kind of impetus, new initiatives coming from there. Having said that, top of mind for many Germans are what's happening right now, which is the transatlantic relationship and its future and how to deal with the challenges there. The question of how do you develop the European Union and what does it mean for Germany? And then obviously the whole question around migration. We have a huge question out there as there are millions of people in Africa looking to Europe and looking to a better life. And in Europe, um, politicians have to deal with the questions around political, social, economic doability of taking more migrants in. And I guess these discussions are complicated and they're obviously easy targets for populist uh, movement. And so that's what you see play out. Now, Merkel and her governments have always tried to find a European answer to those questions because they're really affecting Europe and they need European answers. And she's getting on with it, as we've seen in recent weeks. But the progress, obviously, is slower than many people would like to see. And that is affecting the climate in Germany and her sister party, the CSU, and all the discussions there. And clearly also some of the populists take advantage of it, like the AFD movement. So we see more friction there, more volatility. But I think the course that Merkel follows is still a course of stability, reliability, and European solutions to European problems. Speaking of problems, we're less than a year to go before the UK is at least scheduled to leave the European Union. At this stage, how integrated is the EU on a political level as well as a capital markets level? I mean, very different kinds of questions. But how do you think about that as you're navigating running a business in Germany? Yeah, I think you're right. Some of those discussions around Brexit and the UK leaving Europe, but also some of the criticism of President Trump and others on the progress generally have focused people on the fact that the European Union is the answer and needs to be the answer and integration needs to speed up. And so we've seen probably uh, the adverse reaction so that these kind of events have pushed people towards more Europe and pro-Europe and trying to make Europe happen now. We've seen slow progress, obviously, in some of the areas and concerns on all sorts. But we would think that all of this cannot be an excuse. And the answer needs to be economic reforms, business reforms, and that needs to continue on a European level. From our business, obviously, capital markets union and the homogeneous rules and regulations for the European capital markets is something we really need to make further progress in order to give the European businesses that are very strong businesses the right framework to operate vis-a-vis -vis their competitors in the US and vis-a-vis -vis their competitors in Asia. And that has been a topic, but it gets a lot of attention these days, more so because of these developments outside of the EU. So I think it's a positive in a way. So the criticism from both uh, political leaders in England and from the United States has had the effect of kind of rallying the Europeans together a bit. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's been a lot of activity around reforming the Eurozone banking system. What's your take on the progress that's been made to date? How might a proposed banking union act as sort of a safeguard against another economic downturn and also offer alternatives to London as a finance center? Well, that's another good example. I think there is a general agreement that the European Banking Union needs to be pushed forward for all the good reasons in order to stabilize these banks and, and allow them to weather the next crisis. And some progress has been made with the ESM, the European Stability Mechanism, now getting more responsibilities. That's sort of the bailout fund for the European banks. But there are also big questions still out there. One of them is the European Deposit Insurance 
the question, okay, should there be a European-wide insurance of deposits and the European budget and what the budget should be? And there's clearly some reservations also on the German side as to a wholesale guarantee or large European budgets, and that need to be discussed. Having said that, at least the discussion is underway and people have agreements what need to be in place. For example, we need to separate state funding from bank funding. It's a very important prerequisite to make these banks safer. General, we advocate European Banking Union as it could serve as a basis for European consolidation. And European consolidation on a banking level is important in order to address the cost issues that these banks have and to allow them to invest in the technology to basically phase off their new competition and make sure that they are strong vis-a-vis the global competitors again, the U.S. banks and Asia. There hasn't been a lot of consolidation in the European banking sector. You still have national giants, by and large. Is technology likely to change that at all, or the idea of scale dead in European banking, or is it just hard to predict? It's exactly both sides. I mean, in your point, scale is important, getting the costs down, sort of amortizing these huge investments that will have to happen in technology on the one hand. On the other hand, if the regulatory environment stays like individual national level, then you basically have to replicate lots of things. And it's very tough to get these synergies that you should get through scale. So the one belongs to the other. And as much progress as we could make on the banking union will allow those effects you described come through. How about technology and other sectors? Are you seeing an impact in some of the big industrial companies? I mean, Germany has some massive ones, but you work with a lot of different companies. How are those big conglomerates struggling with the disruption of technology? As you see here, technology change is affecting all large corporates that we deal with in many respects, most importantly with respect to access to their customers, the change in the business models, the disruption of the business models, the change in the value chain. So it affects a lot of aspects of corporate activity. Having said that, if you are like many of the large companies in Germany active in multiple sectors, you multiply that problem. So that in itself is a challenge because you have to apply this technology answer to different businesses that are in different stages of maturity and growth. And so that is a lot of costs that you have to face. So that in turn drives also a simplification of corporate structures. The question of what belongs to the core and what not, what can you fund and how do you fund it? So I think it has ramifications, which are much wider than just addressing the technology problem. It really goes to the core of what does a corporate stand for, what its core capabilities are, and which businesses is in and should be in and which not. Is that trend toward corporate simplification driving M&A activity or more spinoffs? We have seen all of it. In general, it's more the latter. It drives spinoffs, separations, more independent entities that can deal with these challenges. But it also drives in the more traditional industries it drives consolidation and therefore M&A because you need to kind of put businesses together to reap synergies to address the cost issues or to address investment needs that are coming from the tech side, technology side. Let's talk specifically about a great German industry, the automotive industry. Last time you were on, you talked a lot about how technology and new technology was disrupting that sector and how they're making investments and adapting. What's the picture look like today? We have a couple of things that this industry has to face. Clearly, and most importantly, I'd say longer term is the technology change, as we discussed last time around. In the meantime, we had two developments which have gained in prominence. One is the diesel topic. Clearly, the diesel technology, a very sophisticated technology, has been a bit in discussion and in question, given the diesel scandal and all these issues with diesel bans in cities. Now, that certainly has hurt that part of their business and will continue to hurt it. 
Generally speaking, they're still selling a lot of cars. The German companies are producing more than 16 million cars currently. But that will certainly affect that segment. The other point is the tariff discussions. Clearly, 29% of the cars being exported to the U.S., so that clearly would have an impact on those companies. But coming back to the technology issue, the technology issue means that not only they have to look at different powertrain solutions, be it from combustion engine to electric to hydro solutions. So the question there is, can you finance all of this, number one? And then number two, on the distribution side, who buys these cars? Who owns it? Who finances them? Are they autonomous driving? Are they driven? So lots of questions they all have to grapple with, which means lots of investment, lots of questions. How do I finance this investment? So they're still under a lot of pressure to answer those questions. Also here, the solution is manifold, like putting uh, partnerships, joint ventures, getting additional capital in, separating entities to gain independent access to the capital markets. So a bit of what we talked before is kind of very, very present in the German auto sector. So they get all of it in a way, in a very concentrated form. You know, you can't pick up plants and move them overnight, but a lot of the big German car manufacturers have massive footprints in the United States. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's big plants in South Carolina, in Alabama, in, in Kentucky. How are they thinking about their supply chain, given some of the talk around tariffs? And action on tariffs. As you said, they have global supply chains. They have large presence in the U.S. in general, large manufacturing there. Interestingly, some of the U.S.-China tariffs are affecting them now because they are producers of cars in the U.S. that are being exported to China. So we see it's very intertwined globally. But the whole name of the game is increased flexibility. And if you don't know what the future brings, one thing is clear, you have to be more flexible. So that means you need to be able to adapt to producing more locally, to be more flexible in production, which kind of cars you produce where. And you obviously have to go to joint ventures, to partnerships in order to reduce your risk in certain parts. Again, what you see is flexibility is key for those in the past very monolithic kind of companies. And that's sort of the general answer. Obviously, there's lots of specificities as you go line by line, company by company. But that has been sort of the key answer that the executives have to those challenges. Moving away from the big industrial companies, there's a lot of startups and yep. a lot of entrepreneurship in Germany, not always as well known outside Germany, but a lot in the retail space and others. What are we seeing in the startup scene in Germany and what should we glean from that? We have a pretty lively startup scene and Berlin has been famous for it, but you see it in, in every larger city. You see it in Munich, you see it in, in Dusseldorf, in the rhine ruhr area. And they come from B2C as well as B2B models with lots of ideas that traditional companies are looking at. What you see also in the meantime is sort of serial entrepreneurs, so entrepreneurs that sort of had their first startup and they brought it to a sizable scale and then they start the next one. So that's actually a very, very positive movement there throughout the region. I think the only thing that holds them back a bit is bureaucracy and somewhat difficult kind of legal requirements that are done for mid to large size companies and that these smaller entrepreneurs have to deal with. So that's something to be worked on. But other than that, it's a very lively scene, very active scene. So if you fast forward 10, 20 years, do you think the backbone of the German economy will still be these big industrial companies and the mid-sized manufacturing companies, or will a new sector dominate? We get a lot of impetus, lots of ideas, lots of good new ways of looking at businesses from those startup companies. Having said that, the more traditional companies have, in my view, woken up to this and are very active in the scene, looking at what is out there, cooperating 
investing, even buying those companies. And you have companies like Merck that are around for 350 years and sort of casebook examples of adaption. China's been a huge export market for German manufacturers, machine makers, and then like. Has the trade tension between the U.S. and China and the U.S. and, and Europe changed or strengthened that relationship a little bit? You could say that, yeah. I mean, there have been lots of high-profile events and statements from both sides that the cooperation is important and that China and Germany stand to defend free world trade and the benefits of it and that the benefits could be seen, obviously, through the years that Germany and China have been working together. has been very beneficial for both sides, in particular for Germany. That's the one part. The other part, though, is that China is obviously out there telling the German establishment, politicians, business leaders that they are a force for good. And some of the concerns that were there in Germany as to Chinese investment and what happens to technology. In the Mittelstand. The Mittelstand, the patent issues, all of that kind of stuff. That's unwarranted and China is a fair partner. So we'll see how, how far that goes and what it means in practice. But there have been lots of kind of good statements on both sides, certainly also fueled by some of the other stuff we talked about. So how long have you been at Goldman? This year, 25 years. 25 years. Congratulations. Thank you very uh, much. Uh, <laughs> what's uh, been the most memorable part of the career? It's actually interesting. You always go back to where you started. I go back to analyst training in 85 broad. It's a good the, education, right? The training there, and you come in there in this room, and it, uh, you just enter a different world from where you come. And there was one thing that was said and which stayed true through these 25 years and which I keep saying to myself. And that was, the competition is not in the room here and not around you. The competition is you. It's always you that you compete with. That sort of stuck with me in the training. And all these years, I went through my career at Goldman, and I still look back at this as quite a memorable time. So moving aside from finance, what have you read this summer that you've enjoyed? <laughs> and what are you looking forward to reading? That's, a, that's also a, a tough one. So I, I'm looking forward to, I just started it. It's a book by Siri Hustfeld, which is an American writer, and it's called The Delusions of Certainty. It's essays that she published. Uh, she has published a couple of very, very famous books. And it talks about the linkage between body, soul, consciousness, and what sort of remains of us, what we carry over, and whether it's true for us or for animals and other human beings. I found it a very, very thought-provoking book, and I'm not through yet, but from what I have read, I really can recommend it. What do I look forward to read? With all what we talked about, there's a great book by General von Clausewitz, a Prussian army historian. Famous It's, von it's called On War. And I started part of it and read it and put it aside and read it again, and so I really thought that this summer I want to finish it because it has some great lines about the relationship between the army and the commander and the politicians. And I think, you know, when you look and watch what's around there, you look back and you say, well, these questions have been there. They've been around for a long time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah one of Kissinger's favorite books. Wolfgang, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on July 19th, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. 
Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.